0: morning Bethel. missed you all last week. Um, it's good to be back and I was cur- encouraged to hear Pastor Tyler's um, sermon on the uh, recording. so and I think actually last week and this week are going to tie together really well also. Um, our scripture reading for this morning, I'm actually going to change it from what it is in the bulletin. If you could turn instead of um, the sermon text, to a little bit later in Isaiah, there's a passage that I think will complement it well and and serve us as we study chapter 10 this morning. So um, Isaiah 45, you can find it on page 605 in the Pew Bible. If you need a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And also, if you need a Bible, we'd be happy to give you one if you don't have one. We have some out at the Welcome Center. You can grab one afterwards. We'd love to give that to you. So Isaiah 45, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, before I pray for us, and then um, we'll dive into Isaiah chapter 10. So if you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's holy word. Just one quick word. Um, This was written well before Cyrus, king of Persia, came to the throne. So this is prophetic and miraculous because God names the king that he's going to raise up and use a long time before this king ever ascended to the throne. So that's what God is saying here, this pagan king, I'm going to use him for my glory. Um, So that's what the Lord is speaking here, and he's referring to Cyrus, king of Persia. Thus says the Lord to his anointed "'To Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, "'to subdue nations before him "'and to loose the belts of kings, "'to open doors before him "'that gates may not be closed. "'I will go before you and level the exalted places. "'I will break in pieces the doors of bronze "'and cut through the bars of iron. "'I will give you the treasures of darkness "'and the hordes in secret places.' that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open That salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with me, who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth And created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. may be seated. Okay, so... We're heading back into Isaiah here um, as we walk through the book um, section by section, and we come to chapter 10, so our focus um, for this morning is verses 5 to 34, okay? And it, it really kicks up the issues of the sovereignty of God and responsibility of humans, which is kind of like a can of worms, isn't it? It's kind of like kicking the hornet's nest. Um, I'm sure most of you have wrestled more than once with the interplay between God's sovereignty and human freedom or responsibility. So if God is completely sovereign, meaning that he possesses supreme ultimate power and authority over all creation, then what? Are we marionettes on a string? Are we robots? If he knows the end from the beginning, then is this all just a game and he's just up there playing a game with us? And what's the nature of our freedom, our responsibility? If God already knows everything we're going to think and decide and do, then are we actually free? I mean, if it's already all determined, what's the point of trying? What's the point of praying? You ever wrestled with anything like this? On the other hand, if we are truly free, does that mean that God can't know our future free decisions? Because they haven't been chosen or decided yet, right? Does that mean the future is yet to be determined? Is, is life like kind of like a character in a book or we're, we're kind of characters in a book and God wrote the book and so, you know, he sees end from the beginning and, you know, we can't do otherwise than what's already been written in for us to do and say, I mean, we experience life and choices as meaningful and real, but are they really? How about when it comes to terrible atrocities perpetrated by humans? Why does God allow it to happen? Is it that he can't do everything he wants to do? Has he handcuffed himself in the interest of genuine human freedom? Or is it that he doesn't want to do everything? Is he not perfectly loving? 9-11, ISIS? Why didn't he intervene sooner? What is God like? What's the nature of his sovereignty? What's the nature of our responsibility, our freedom? Well, as we walk through the book of Isaiah, take heart. We're going to meet God, Bethel. Isaiah says, Meet God, the sovereign of the universe. And he is most certainly beyond our comprehension at times. He will confound us. We will not always understand what he's up to. And you know what? I hope that you see that you wouldn't want it any other way. Would you really want a God that you could totally figure out and understand and predict? I mean, that would be a pretty small God, wouldn't it? But instead, as Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Or Isaiah 55, to stay in the book of Isaiah, listen, for my thoughts, God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, I'm sorry, neither neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's good to keep in mind as we struggle with these issues, right? Just the distance between his ways and thoughts, they're so much higher than ours. So we're gonna bump into some of these mysterious thoughts and ways of God this morning as we consider the rest of Isaiah 10. So there's an outline in the bulletin, and I think the slides will also be up to help guide us through. So first point, God is sovereign over human powers, verses five and six. So at that time, Assyria was the superpower Um, in the area, threatening God's people. And God was using Assyria like a tool to judge his people, which was a hard pill for them to swallow. But then God's going to turn and judge Assyria. So look at verse 5, God's sovereign over human powers. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, the hands of the Assyrians, their power, that's actually my fury, Against a godless nation I send him. That's shocking. That's referring to God's people. They are being referred to as a godless nation. That's how far they had drifted from God. Against a godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath. These were supposed to be the people of God's special affection. But they'd so rejected him that now they're called the people of his wrath. I command him, the Assyrians, to take, spoil, and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Okay? So there was this refrain in the last section, chapter 9, and then again in verse 4 of chapter 10, if you see it there, for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. Um, His people had stubbornly rebelled, refused to repent, refused to listen, And they're called this godless nation. God had to deal severely with his people to get their attention and to deal with their rebellion. So listen to Ray Ortland; He's got a great um, comment on this section. God is no cardboard cutout. He is a real person with real anger and real love. He has wonderful things he wants to talk to us about. His grace can recover everything we failed to be, but he will not negotiate with our self-exaltation. God may walk up to you at some point and punch you right in the nose and knock you flat. Why does God blindside us at times? Because the only way we'll listen is the hard way. He would rather lead us gently beside still waters, but he will not settle for a polite religious unreality with him so he does this he gets their attention by shocking means he uses Assyria this wicked nation as the rod of his anger okay they were vicious imperialists okay they were just conquering kind of gobbling up land so this was God's doing shocking they were the rod of God's anger So do you see how God is clearly sovereign over human powers, clearly sovereign over the nations, even wicked nations, and he's exercising his sovereignty over the Assyrians to use them as a tool to judge his people. So meet God. We meet him. He's sovereign over human powers and even sovereign over evil. We might push back at that thought a little bit. This is what God's word clearly says, like we read in Isaiah 45 or Lamentations 3, listen to this, 337 and 38, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad or evil come? That's not my idea. That's God's word. Now, that doesn't mean that God is evil, that he's Jekyll and Hyde. The point is, he's never tainted by it. He's light in him. There's no darkness at all. But he is so sovereign that he can oversee and use evil for his own purposes. Okay, now again, we we push back on this a little bit, but it might be helpful to notice one of the reasons why we push back. Okay, and the reason for God, Tim Keller tells us, of this philosopher, um, J.L. Mackey. He makes the case against God in his book, The Miracle of Theism. He states it like this. If, if a God, I'm sorry, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. And because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. You ever bumped into that problem? In your own heart or Talking to somebody else? Well, Keller goes on to show the weakness of the argument. He said, tucked away within the assertion that the the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise. Namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. The reasoning is, of course, fallacious. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. If you, have a good, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways, end quote. Remember Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways not your ways. They're infinitely higher. So God is sovereign over human powers. What do the human powers think of this? Look at the second point. Humans are not sovereign no matter what they think or do. Look at verses 7 to 11. But he, that's Assyria kind of personified, he does not so intend and his heart does not think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not all my commanders kings? In other words, my commanders, like the king of Assyria, saying my commanders are more powerful than the kings they conquer. And then verse 9, Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? We have no idea what that means. Well, if you look at a map and if you were... Living in the ancient Near East, these are kingdoms located progressively in the southern direction, Assyria down to Israel. Okay? So the point is the Assyrian king saying, I took that one and that one, and the next one's gonna be just like the last one. I'm gonna take Israel just like I did. The other nations. Verse 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? Okay, so from the vantage point of the Assyrians, these power this powerful kingdom, what are they thinking? Well, all these kingdoms that they've conquered, they all had their idols, their own gods. In fact, the, God, the idols, the, the kind of statues and so forth of these other nations, they were even more impressive than the idols in Jerusalem or Samaria, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. Okay, So it's going to be a piece of cake to mow down those cities because of their inferior gods, right? Inferior idols, inferior gods. But Israel was never supposed to have any idols, right? Don't make an image. You should have no other gods. Don't make yourself a carved image because this God, their God, is the one who made everyone in his image. We're not supposed to be trying to make him in ours. So again, this speaks of the rebellion of Israel. They had these idols, but it also shows that the Assyrians view Yahweh just like another tribal deity. They've beaten gods like this before. Their perception is that they are sovereign. Look down at verse 13 and 14. For he says, this is Assyria speaking again, by the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. So what are they thinking? the human powers that are being used as a tool, the Assyrians, hey, conquering kingdoms is like taking candy from a baby or like eggs from a nest. But God is not done with the Assyrians. Yes, they are the rod of his wrath and he's judging his people by them, but once he's finished with them, he's going to judge them for their wickedness because God can justly judge his tools. Okay. Next point, verses 12 to 19. Look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So the true sovereign, the Lord, has work to do among his people. They must be judged, they must be purified and he's using the Assyrians like a tool to accomplish it and when he's finished with them, he will punish them for their pride. So the Assyrians think that they're doing this all by their strength and wisdom and the Lord, the true sovereign, says in verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. You're just a tool, Assyria. So the Lord is going to punish the arrogant Assyrians. Verse 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory, the glory of the Assyrian kingdom, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Okay, do you see what's going on there? The Lord has at his disposal to mete out judgment, to deal with these so-called sovereign powers. He has the means to deal with them internally, with internal means of, of judgment, kindling of fire, or I'm sorry, the sickness, this wasting sickness, but also external threats and things to deal with them. Burning, kindling, uh, burning will be kindled like burning of fire. So verse 17, the light of Israel become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest, Assyria is kind of, it's a metaphor to speak of their strength like they're this grand forest, the glory of it, of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Okay, so the Lord is at work to purify his people. And in the process, he's going to refine and draw out this faithful remnant from, from Israel, okay? people that are really trusting in him. So that fire is going to purify his people, but that's not the only remnant he's creating. You see it in verse 19. The remnant of the trees of his phorias, that's the Assyrian army. they are going to be so few that a, that a child could conduct the census. The Lord of hosts is going to reduce the host of Assyria a handful. Look up at verse 17. It says it's going to happen in one day. You see that? Devour his thorns and briars in one day. Do you know this actually happened? (laughs) What the Lord said he's going to do he actually did and it happened in one day? Flip ahead to Isaiah chapter 37. So the Assyrian army as you're turning there 37.23, you can go to that spot. The Assyrian army is pressing in on Jerusalem. Hezekiah is on the throne. They've taken all the fortified cities around. It looks like they're just toast. There's no way they can defend themselves against this mighty onslaught. And the Rabshakeh, this military commander, spokesman guy, comes and just taunts Jerusalem. And apparently there are something like 200,000 soldiers, something like that. Who knows how many in total? So this is bad news for Jerusalem. And Hezekiah basically says, you know, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He looks to the Lord. And the Lord responds. Look at verse 23. Isaiah 37, 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Assyria. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against me, the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord and you have said... With my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains. In other words, I've done all this this conquering. And the Lord responds to their boasts. Look at verse 26. He says, Have you not heard that I planned this? I determined it long ago. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. It's my doing not yours. Verse 29, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Verse 31, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. He's purifying a people. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, And then he makes a promise. Look at verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. Imagine you're in the city. There's this massive horde. Nobody's been able to stop them. And you're powerless against them. And the Lord says this to you. He shall not come into this city or even shoot an arrow. He's going to go right back the way he came. Why? Verse 35, because I'm going to defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then 36, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib turned around and went home, and then he was killed by his own sons, and one day, now a child can count the soldiers. So the sovereign God can justly judge the tools he uses for judgment. The Syrians were wicked and savage and arrogant, and God used them. It's a hard pill to swallow. And he was not guilty of their ruthlessness and their cruel injustices. And then he judged them. There's mystery here, isn't there? How does this fit? How does this fit our sensibilities of justice and what's right and fair? And I don't think we're going to be able to fully understand that mystery this side of heaven. But at least we need to be sure to embrace fully both sides of a difficult tension that are constantly laid out for us in the Bible. We have to hold on to both. We can't sacrifice one on the altar of the other. Okay, we dare not subject the Bible to our human logic. Okay, So This is just a way to summarize what we're holding on to. We'll call it biblical compatibilism. That there are two truths that are compatible. They're not incompatible. Okay? And I put a little summary definition. One of my seminary professors um, has written extensively on these issues, and he's got a helpful little summary. It's in the notes. I think we've got a slide for it. Here's the two truths that summarize this tension. God is absolutely sovereign, and His sovereignty never removes or diminishes human responsibility. And human beings are morally responsible. But the exercise of the responsibility never makes God absolutely contingent or or subject to their choices, as if their wills, human wills, were ultimately determinative, okay? So human logic says those both can't be true. They aren't compatible. If God's absolutely sovereign, if he knows totally the future, even before he said let there be light, if, if it's all mapped out, he knows the end from the beginning, then you know what, we're just robots. These truths are not compatible. Or human logic may say, yeah, human beings are responsible and free, so God's sovereignty is limited He chose to limit himself. He is ultimately subject, at the end of the day, to our free will because he decided to do it that way. Otherwise, if that's not the case, it's not to freedom. So do you see the tension? Why so many people feel like those things are incompatible? Listen to this one. Uh, This is actually a Christian pastor and theologian, so there are other views out there. I wish I could ask each of you, but what do you think of this view? In the Christian view, God knows all of reality, everything there is to know. But to assume he knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he freely does it. But it's not. So says this guy. If we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make them, they don't exist Thus, in my view at least, thank you for that qualifier, there simply isn't anything to know until we make it there to know. So God can't foreknow the good or bad decisions of the people he creates until he creates these people, and they, in turn, create their decisions. Is that what the Bible says? I mean, there's a variety of ways philosophers, theologians, and the rest of us, because we're all theologians have tried to put these two things together through the ages. So you have hard determinism. God's just planned it all. It leads to fatalism. Some people fall off the horse on that side. You know, hey, the book was written before one day came to pass. What God wills will come to pass, whether we like it or not, whether we participate or not. Throw up your hands. Disincentive to prayer. Disincentive to share the gospel. No, that's not biblical. The Bible never goes there as far as the implications of God's exhaustive sovereignty. I could give examples. I'll pass to just to keep going here. There's another view. I'll call it the, the rider on the white horse view. Now, I know Jesus does come in on a white horse. I'm not trying to undo that. But this is what I mean by this. There are a lot of Christians that hold this view by default. And so here's what they would do. Let's take a biblical example the the Joseph story in Genesis. All this terrible stuff that goes on with Joseph, and then at the end, there's some interpretation. and, And sometimes people view that as, well, the brothers, they did all this evil, but you know what? God, he turned it all around. He came in on the white horse and cleaned it all up. Isn't it great? Praise God that he can roll with the punches and just come in and clean it up on the white horse. But he's more sovereign than... He rushes in to clean up and turn things to good. Because guess what Genesis fifty twenty says? It says, as for you, you, brothers, Joseph speaking, you meant, you intended evil against me, but God intended the evil, he meant the evil for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He didn't just come in on the white horse to fix it after the brothers screwed it up. He is so sovereign that he was overseeing and he had intentions from the beginning before those brothers even threw him in the pit and sold him. Still other people believe in what we might call the empathetic sufferer view. God yielded his ultimate control and limited himself. In a sense, he kind of handcuffed himself for the sake of what they would say freely chosen love. So we do have real, significant, genuine freedom, and therefore we are responsible, but the consequence is that we can surprise God or thwart his purposes. And so thankfully, you know, again, he can roll with the punches. Maybe there's a little combination with the white rider on the right horse view. But we can at least be encouraged that God is, is often just as frustrated or grieved as we are at the evil and suffering in the world. He's empathetic because, and I think the reason this is so attractive to some people is because God's empathy seems more real, more genuine. It's almost like it gets him off the hook because he didn't really intend this in the beginning. You guys tracking with me? And I think the reason why any of these views gain traction is because they're partially true, they emphasize one or the other. And also because they fit with our human logic regarding freedom and the nature of love and fairness. But we can't, we have to refuse to sacrifice one truth on the altar of the other. The Bible leads us again and again and again to embrace both and hold them together. Of course, that's going to produce some tension in our minds and in our hearts. But guess what? There's way more tension with those other views if you start to tease them out, okay? And we should not expect that we're not going to totally understand God's mind and ways in this life. What do we expect? Are we surprised that God said the things he says and does will sometimes confound us? So let's press on to the ultimate example here of these two truths: sovereignty of God, responsibility of man, at the cross of Christ. Okay? Listen to two texts. You can turn there if you want, Acts 2, and then Acts 4. But listen to this. Listen to how the Bible holds both of these things together as true, not sacrificing one or the other. So Acts 2.22, early church, Peter's preaching, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned it; they're lawless; they're guilty; they're responsible. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it wasn't possible for him, for him to be held by it. Or flip to chapter four in Acts; you have the same reasoning idea. This. This is biblical logic, not our human logic. It's holding both of these truths in tension. Acts 4.26, they're praying. The early church is praying, and they're quoting Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. End quote of Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So was God absolutely sovereign over this plan of salvation? Yes. Judas? Yes. Son of perdition, doomed to destruction, predicted ahead of time. Peter's denial? Jesus predicts it ahead of time. Now, does that mean they're not responsible? Like, after Peter denies Jesus the third time, he didn't say, Whew, glad that's over. He wept. The Pharisees, Herod, Pilate, they're guilty. And what they did was predestined by God. This is biblical compatibilism. Those things are not incompatible, they're compatible. And again, I think one of the reasons, one of the things going on in our hearts that pushes us to want to limit the sovereignty of God is that we want to get him off the hook. How could he let Nazi Germany happen? How could he let 9-11 happen? How could he let ISIS continue? Or maybe something very personal in your life that you think is just over the top, that God Allowed to happen or ordained to happen? Are you kidding me? And you know why we do that, I think? It's because we think we're more loving or more just than God. If he allows this much suffering, he can't be all loving. Okay, so listen, if that's, if that's where your heart is, if that's where it's been, maybe this is kicking up some of that stuff from past wrestlings, And you've either got God on trial because you think that the amount of suffering and evil in the world is just over the top, incompatible with God being all loving and all powerful. Or if you're trying to get God off the hook by adopting one of these unbiblical kind of incompatibilist views, then just, would you please hear me here? One, it doesn't get God off the hook. You actually end up raising a whole host of new problems and issues Second, God doesn't need to be gotten off the hook. He needs to be trusted. He doesn't need us to try to figure out ways to defend him. And then thirdly, but most importantly, don't ever let this one thing, this one thing, central thing, drift off the center of your radar. Where's God in all our suffering? Why did God allow or ordain there to be suffering in this world? Why doesn't he end all the suffering? Well, make sure this one thing stays at the center. God willingly, of his own free will, put himself on the hook of human suffering. And not just any human suffering, Bethel. He came down and identified with our suffering so that we might never have to identify with the suffering he went through. Do you know what I'm talking about? What do I mean by that? Jesus took hell on the cross so that anyone who trusts him would never have to experience the suffering hell he identified with our suffering so that we might never have to identify with what he went through listen this is so sweet this is such love and mercy and grace he planned that (coughs) he ordained for the worst possible human suffering to fall on him He absorbed it for us so that we might never have to. Does that help? Is that like encouraging? And he is doing something about the great suffering in this world. The suffering that's all our fault. How can it be all fault? Okay, tension. (laughs) We're genuinely guilty. The suffering that is all our fault. He is redeeming a people for himself, making them new. And one day Jesus will return, set everything to rights and make all things new, and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore, or death. And listen, the resolution is going to be so glorious that we will never, ever, ever doubt forever the truth of Romans 8:18. 8, this is where it ties in with what Tyler's preaching last week. Paul said, who suffered more than any of us in this this room ever probably will suffer or have suffered. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And I love this quote. Now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Maybe that's good news. Maybe that's not something to kick against. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indomitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, Less a scratch on a penny. Glory's got to be really good. If the suffering in this world, which is horrific, will one day, it'll be evident to us. We can see it by faith, but it's through a mirror dimly. But one day we're going to see with utter clarity that all this present suffering is not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All blood bought on the cross. So the sovereign plan of God to redeem us at His own expense, to suffer more than we ever will, the cross of Christ says God is for us like nothing else, which again, just Tyler, come up and preach your sermon again. (laughs) Um, So we were going to spend the rest of the time on verses 20 to 34, which is actually kind of a quick point. But for the sake of time, we're going to stop and just be thankful that God is for us. And then we're going to sing and glory in our Redeemer who took all that suffering on himself so that we might never have to. Um, We're going to sing that song if the musicians can come up. And then we'll have at least some time for some Q&A. Oh Father, I pray that we would see you as you are, that you would blow up the caricatures and help us to behold our God and behold our ourselves and behold our great redeemer. And I pray that we would glory in our redeemer who took infinite suffering so that our suffering would one day end and fullness of joy and pleasures evermore would be ours. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.